Uh, this reminds me of one of my terrible ideas in my early conlanging days when <laughs> I'd made my language or I sort of was in the process of making my language and then I came to learn that languages uh, change over time and there are certain, we'll probably talk more about this a bit later, but there are certain pressures and certain changes that they'll be subjected to and my conlang was supposed to be spoken over over a period of about 3,000 years and so I decided that the justification for that not having the language change was that there's a, a totalitarian government who by law requires that everyone speak the language exactly the same way and that law stays consistent over a 3,000 year period so that no one ever speaks any differently at any point in history, <laughs> which that is completely nonsensical. Welcome to Worldcasting, where we discuss real, made-up things. I'm your host, Adam Bassett, UX and UI... Leave it, leave it in. Screw it. Whatever. I'm Adam Bassett, UX and UI designer at Campfire Technology, uh, game designer at Sponge <laughs> Games, and sometimes I write and draw stuff, too. You've heard it before, probably, I assume. Uh, we'll be discussing conlanging today, as you may have picked up from the title. Uh, we're going to talk about creating our own languages and enhancing your world building through them or using language as a primary point of your world building project. Uh, joining me today, we've got Red, Slorny, and our guest, Biblaridian. Uh, hi, uh, I'm Red. I think this is the first time I've ever been the first person uh, that's not the main host to introduce themselves because we do it alphabetically typically, uh, and then guests guess go last. So, you know, it's kind of fun. Uh, I am an editor uh, at the World Building Magazine. Uh, I have been for about five years now, um, and uh, I'm just excited to be here. Uh, I don't get to talk about linguistics very often, and I get to study that a little bit in college. So it's, uh, it's a fun topic. Lo really looking forward to it. Hi, I'm Sorani. I'm I'm not very well known, but I'm pretty active on Reddit as the community moderator for R slash Canlangs. I also wrote a small resource uh, that's called Canlangs University. That's been quite useful to many people I've heard. And that's it for me. Hello, I'm Bibleridian and I run a YouTube channel of the same name. There's far too many syllables in there, and I apologize for that. You can just call me Bib. Um, <laughs> and I make content uh, mainly about one of two things. Number one, speculative biology, and number two, conlanging. I have, I think, four conlangs that I think I'm at least somewhat kind of satisfied with, and then I have a bunch of other ones that are complete trash that we don't talk about, so... Yeah, happy to be here. <laughs> Thank you all for joining us. Um, so I think what we're going to start with here is just to kind of make sure everyone's on the same page. Um, could, could someone tell me what the heck a conlang is? Well, it <laughs> I certainly can, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for participating, Ed. <laughs> well, you see, kids, a conlang is a constructed language. 
smushed together. That's how we get the word conlang. Uh, conlangs uh, have been around for a lot longer than you probably think. Uh, you know, uh, Elvish was not the first uh, time around uh, that particular garden. People have been doing conlangs uh, since, as far as we know, all the way back into like the 15th century. Uh, people have been using them for uh, religious reasons, philosophical reasons, or for just plain darn fun to add some flavor uh, to that world building stew. Mm-hmm. And I think um, just to sort of add to that, um, that you kind of alluded to, conlangs can be for a variety of different purposes. Um, I imagine mainly we're going to be discussing conlang in a world building context context today. Um but they, <laughs> I know. What? Shot horror. Um, <laughs> but there are uh, numerous reasons why someone would want to make a conlang, whether it's something like Esperanto, which is uh, in the vein of something that we call an auxiliary language, um, which is to facilitate international communication, uh, to create a common language to help whatever the target groups of people are to more easily communicate with one another or if it's a secret language that's intended to make it harder for the information being conveyed to be understood for whatever reason so there are lots of different reasons you could want to make a conlang but the in a world building context most of the time we'll be talking about what's referred to as an art lang or an artistic language, which is a language created, how do you even dis- define this? Um, in the furtherance of some artistic goal and, and Tolkien's languages, for example, possibly the most famous art langs, um, his, yes, he definitely wasn't the first person to make a conlang but I believe he may have been, actually, no, I'm gonna take that back. There were probably some people before him, but he was one of the earlier examples of someone coming up with a language just because it's fun and just because he wanted to include it in the world Mm -hmm. he was making. And I feel like with, uh, I feel like with, current media, it's become more public and more, maybe even expected in some situations because you've got like the Mm -hmm. avatar, the game of Thrones, like all of these um, fantasy and sci-fi stories that are being put into visual media that, you know, in in a book and we're, I think we're touching this uh, a little bit later as well, but in a book, like you just need a couple of terms to kind of get a feel for things. Um, But when you're talking about like uh, film, you know, it, it, really helps you immerse into the story and the cultures that are being presented a lot easier. Like when you're seeing the language being spoken on the screen, uh, I think that's just like, I mean, to, to my knowledge, at least that has been a more recent thing and it's become more common. Um, and just something that I've been noticing as, you know, we explore these more fantastical mm, stories. Yeah. There's screen. definitely a layer of, yeah, there's definitely a layer of depth it adds to, in different ways, dif- depending on the medium. Uh, I also just wanted to throw in quickly, uh, I think it's important to make a distinction between a conlang and a cipher or a code. Um, so, for example, something like Pig Latin, 
um, or a Caesar cipher or something, that would not be considered a conlang because that is taking an already existing language and applying an algorithm to it to generate some new sequence. But that always requires some already extant thing to base the new sequence off of. Whereas a conlang, just like a quote-unquote real language or natural language, um, exists on its own and has its own unique structure and grammar, etc. Yeah, yeah, it, it might be influenced by other languages, sure, yeah. but it's not like dependent on them. Yeah, it's a yeah. and that's the, Go ahead. And we're not saying that in some way to demean anyone who's out there doing something like that. I mean, I know also a lot of people will make different scripts, uh, you know, ways for them to write uh, different orthographies uh, that really are just English uh, with just you know a different you know picture basically. Uh, it's not to say that that's any less cool, uh, because let's face it, uh, sometimes they can look pretty. I'm cool. probably going to say this. Um, oh, but, sorry, uh, it's constructed language are a different thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm probably going to say this several times during this, but it all depends on what your goals are, what your actually, what your actual creative intent right. is, because there is no right or wrong way to conlang or just world build in general. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. for sure. I mean, while it's done to your to your goals, you also have to take into consideration that other people exist and have opinions. Which is sometimes going to lead to, if you share something that's not a conlang, oh yeah, I know, <laughs> but if you share something that's not considered a conlang by a community, and you say it's a conlang, you're going to get some bad feelings mixed in there. Important. To yeah, it's it's good. To, it's good to understand the terminology. Yeah. Well, and and again too. Again, it's not like it's a matter of that being something that should you should let you get you down. I mean, this is uh, as all things world building, writing, drawing, whatever. It's an artistic endeavor. Um, <clears throat> it's not not quite a science. This is one of the few places where this is about the closest you can get to a you know science in in the world of fiction, but. Uh, still an artistic uh, endeavor at its core when you're doing it for world building. Yeah, and I think that since it's just art, you cannot say this is a bad conlang. There are no bad conlangs. Right. There are only conlangs that fail their goals or conlangs that right. don't fail their goals. And these are the good conlangs. But you cannot judge of the goals. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. Um, okay, so for the sake of moving this thing along, I think we should talk about the uh, distinction between naming languages and, I guess, uh, complex or full conlangs. Because um, this is something that was actually somewhat new to me. I was doing some research into this for a different project with Campfire. And, uh, you know, through my conversations with some folks in the conlanging seen a little bit more than I was, I think some of you as well, um, you know, we kind of discussed how there was this uh, thing that I thought was a conlang, which was this, you know, very complex thing that was highly detailed and had all this unique custom script and uh, grammar and everything. And then there's this, I guess, simpler form called a naming language, uh, which is basically like, um, you know, before Game of Thrones became this big uh, television show on HBO, it didn't need a, the, you know, the ability to 
speak it with grammatical correctness. So, you, you know, Martin just had a couple of uh, words thrown in, like kal kalisi, uh, you know, these different things for terms that was... Vala mogolis, vala and just variations. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, things that were important to the culture that kind of needed to be conveyed through the page, but, like, we didn't need to have full conversations in Dothraki, uh, you know, like we did when we were seeing it unfold on the, t- on the TV. Um, so I, I think it's worth kind of exploring naming languages a little bit, because I feel like when we're talking about creating a language for a story, especially if it's written, that's kind of what people are thinking about maybe most of the time. Um, so I, I guess I'd just kind of like to pose a question to whoever is uh, interested in discussing that a little bit. Like, what do you think makes a good naming language? It's consistency for me. Because if you are making a naming language... Yeah, I think, I think a lot of phonetic, phonetic consistencies oh, is kind of the big thing. I don't name. care about phonetics. I feel like a lot of world Oh, no, not <laughs> really. I mean, it's specific <laughs> consistency for me. Because if you're na- making a naming language, you're likely using it in a limited extent. So, set phrases or names on a map, or maybe both. I mean, you can. So, if you have some consistency in that, where your words look kind of the same so that the reader can just identify them, I think it's important to give that feeling of one culture, and thus you can have more naming languages, one for each culture. I'm going to go ahead and share an example for me. Um, the first time that I, the even the concept of conlanging, like, occurred to me properly uh, was when I was reading the Silmarillion for the first time. And Elvish is by no means a naming language. It's far more advanced than the typical naming language would be. But oh, I think yeah. it still illustrates this point. Um, I remember, it just struck me, I remember the specific example, the, so, in the Silmarillion, the overarching villain of the whole thing is Morgoth, who's like the progenitor of all evil, and they translate his name as the Dark Enemy. And then anyone who's familiar with Lord of the Rings will know about Mordor, the Dark Land. And then there's Moria, the which I think it's the Dark Chasm, I think is how they translate it. And then there's Minas Morgul, the Tower of Dark Sorcery. So, it just struck me at some point, like, hmm... This more element, M-O-R, that, that certainly seems to be showing up a lot, and it seems to have to convey the meaning of dark in some way. And so that was when it occurred to me, like, okay, this clearly isn't just gibberish. There is some thought and systematicity behind it. And the, when I noticed that, I started noticing other elements like that, like Amon, which means hill, and then Amon Hen, and Amon, Amon Din, and Amon Ruth. And then Ang, which means iron, like an Ang band, the iron prison, and Ang Lachel, the flaming sword. So I think getting that sort of effect is is what you're aiming for with a naming language, I think, where you can, it need not be made overtly clear to the reader, but if they go looking for it, they can find these sorts of patterns. And you, you find these a lot in uh, a lot of modern uh, fiction that does, you know, like spell casting with, you know, words. Uh, a, a really good example is the ancient language and inheritance. Although technically, uh, 
calling that one some form of conlang is, is a little yeah, difficult. Yeah, I have problem uh, with that. Again, it's it's not to say that it's not a constructed language to some degree, but it's essentially a bastardization of Old Norse. In a way, yeah. Because, um, I mean, he basically pulled a bunch of terms from Old Norse, and every now and then he would throw in an invented term and stuff like that, which is a fine way to do it. Uh, I mean, people have been doing that for for eons, uh, you know, stealing from languages that people don't really speak anymore. Uh, poor Latin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for some reason, everyone uses ecclesiastical <laughs> Latin. They don't use classical Latin, which just makes me cry. Yeah, yeah, uh, I feel you. Student of Latin, <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, that's uh, that's a really good example, though, is, is to look at a lot of modern fantasy fiction and see uh, they just have terms in there. Really, uh, sure, they'll sometimes throw in you know prepositional phrases and stuff like that so they can make full blown sentences every now and then. But there's not a complexity to it. There's not specific rules to it. A naming language typically is kind of the lowest effort you can give a, con- a constructed language. It serves a purpose to make uh, place names, uh, spell names, and things like that uh, consistent, make them sound like they all kind of belong to the same group of thing. Um, and that's kind of what uh, a lot of these naming languages ultimately come yeah, out. Yeah, that's when yeah, you... And I kind of... I... Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh. Uh, that's when you put the consistency... The constant... I'll manage consistency a bit too far, and you end up doing something that we could call almost an engineered language because everything is very systematic. Mm-hmm. But that's a fault in naming languages, in, at least in fantasy and sci-fi, because you generally want something that emulates reality, natural languages. And you do not get that with such consistency and such repetition without having recursion or like different synonyms for the same terms variations Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so so what's the advice here to be like 85 percent consistent and then for the rest of it just to be like eh, whatever oh uh no (laughs) well so i'll I'll point you to our episode uh from season one on naming things uh and, and adam you and i had joked about this earlier today when we were chatting yeah um but, you know, there is a certain amount of ridiculousness to natural language. Um, things that just kind of change on their own. Uh, heck, just in our meme channel the other day, we were talking about uh, writing rules, you know, quote-unquote rules. Uh, languages follow that same principle where it's like it's largely, they're more guidelines than anything. Uh, so, honestly, I think that's one of the funner things about constructed languages, too, is that sometimes there are areas where you have wiggle room uh, that is kind of fun to play with, and that's a way that you can take a naming language and convert it into something more complex. Uh, when you try to find ways to step away from that rote cons- uh, consistency that Slorini's talking about, um, you can find ways to sort of diversify a bit, uh, have synonyms and things like that, have uh, phrases that uh, sound similar to other things. You know, homophones are, are a class example, too. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I, I do want to circle back a little bit red to your point on this being one of the lower effort ways to make a language. I want to clarify for anyone listening and hearing that, uh, and maybe new to this, like low effort doesn't mean bad. Oh no, definitely it's not. Yeah. Again, it's what, what your goal is, right? Exactly. If you only need a a thing for, for naming spells, it's okay for it to be low. Yeah. Like if if you're writing, (laughs) if you're writing like a, I don't know, young, young adult fantasy story about someone who goes off and saves the world, like is, does linguistics have to be a big part of that? Oh, uh, like I have opinions about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's not easy. So, like, it, I, I, I think all I'm trying to say here is like, um, 
you know, sometimes doing more work in this space can be distracting from what your goals for the overall project are. Um, yeah. Like it's, it's cool to keep in mind some of the things we're gonna talk about later, like the phonetics and the script and like, th these are all cool, like world building notes to have, but you don't always need them. You don't need to spend a ton of time on them all the time. Sometimes you just need something to like throw around some words and make magic happen. That's yeah. kind of the thing with world building is that it's, such a huge all-encompassing thing you're literally making an entire world you're always going to have to prioritize some elements over others depending yeah. on what your goals are so if yeah exactly as you say if linguistics or the, the language that people are speaking just isn't that much of a priority to you then it doesn't really make very much sense to expend all this time and effort into making it so a naming language would just be perfectly serviceable in that case yeah, and you shouldn't be tearing your hair out uh, over, uh, you know, like, not making the perfect constructed language. Because, like, here, here's the tough thing to remember, too. Uh, we can't all be Tolkien. The man was uh, studying linguistics. So, I mean, like, well, he has a background. Oh. Well, well, Adam, <laughs> have you studied linguistics? Uh, uh, sure. <laughs> then maybe I... you could be Tolkien, I guess. <laughs> But like that's the thing though is, it, is it, it's okay it was what we're saying for for low effort things uh it's there's nothing wrong with that because again we're not all scientists we're not all linguists we're all, you know we're a bunch of guys who sit around in, uh, and girls uh, and various other people uh sitting in a room literally just coming up with stuff uh that's that's fun and cool um it's not to say that you shouldn't put in effort at all but again it's just low effort we're not we're not being derogatory here. It's okay. Yeah, I mean, it's like calling low effort just replicating Christianism in your building and just changing the names. Mm -hmm. That's low right. effort, but it happens all the time. Yeah, but <laughs> it's valid it, if it works in your world. In right. what, it just works. That's fine. Right. Right. So, um, uh, for you, uh, Conlang savvy gentlemen. Uh, if you were to go about uh, constructing uh, a name and language, then uh, what what sort of uh, things are the first things that you're going to be looking at doing to uh, to create the, start that process? Goals. That's mm, yeah. the first thing in well any mm -hmm. project, but with conlanging, since it's so mm -hmm. abstract in some ways, and it's just like imposing meaning onto sounds and words, and the words are by the very nature abstract so you have to just set goals to know where you're headed yeah it's um I, again i'm probably going to hit back on this point later but in conlang it's a very good idea to have some sort of goals laid out from the very beginning to guide your process because kind of relating to what i mentioned earlier of there are lots of different applications for conlanging even outside of world building and if you don't have a clear idea of what and how exactly this language is going to be used, then that might, it might make it difficult to decide exactly how to proceed at a certain point. So have a clear idea, I would say, first of all, of the culture or the, the population of speakers, um, where this language is going to surface in the narrative or in the world at large and then use that as a basis for informing all of your decisions and i would hmm? 
I would add two points to that, which is how it's going to be expressed, because if it's only written, who cares about sound? And what mm -hmm. is your medium as the creator? Are you doing that for a movie? Are you doing that for a book? And that's mm. going to also inform your decision. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because, you know, vice versa, with your point about uh, who cares how it sounds, like if it's for a movie and no one's writing it down, who cares how it looks? Yeah, exactly. Hmm. Well, and so, right, right. Well, and I, I think this uh, brings up an, another excellent example, too. Um, I had mentioned before that just a script does not necessarily Conlang make. Uh, that's not entirely always true. I think a classic, uh, classic, a good example of this is uh, is the uh, the time language from Arrival. Um, while that's oh, not very yeah. deep at all, that's that's kind of a naming language scenario there, but it serves a function in the story. Yeah, um, and so yeah. it has a purpose, right? And they have a goal in mind. It's not really something that's going to be spoken, and you could argue that it kind of is through all the weird whale and big cat purring noises that they mix <laughs> together to make uh, the speech patterns uh, <laughs> of of, of the uh, the aliens in Arrival, but. Um, but it is fascinating, though. You can you can go Google that whole process too, though, of how they made that ring language and how a linguist would go about trying to decipher that. Um, that would probably be the closest you're going to get to just a script only sort of uh, conlang that really passes muster there. Um, uh, and so that was a, a solid moment, though, of them understanding the goal that they had in mind. They didn't have to get too complex with it, but they still wanted something that uh, that felt real and visceral. So they did just enough to make it pass for that. Yeah, and for instance, there's the opposite side of this spectrum, which is a written language that's just as functional as an entire spoken language, but that does not represent words in the same way as English. And that can be very, very complex, such as mm -hmm. uh, size and Alex Fink's nonlinear writing system. I was actually mm -hmm. going to mention that, yeah. Uh, I can't remember what it's called. Unals, mm -hmm. is that it? Uh, U-N-L-W-S. Anchor Nonlinear yeah. Writing System. That's it, yeah. Um, it's a language that's just purely written, and there's no spoken component to it at all. Yeah, it does not rely on any existing language. So it's a kernel language that's only written. Huh. That's pretty cool, actually. Hmm. Yeah. Well, on the on the note of things getting more complex, uh, should we move on to you know if you don't want to make a naming language that you're just going to reference a couple of times and try and keep consistent and kind of leave it at that, um, should we start delving into the process to make a more complex language? Sure. Hmm. So there is no, as far as I'm aware, there's no um, formal distinction between a naming language and a more complex language um as in there's no sort of cutoff point of you have a naming language and then it becomes increasingly larger and more complex and then you cross some sort of threshold and now it's a proper conlang it's it's, it's more art, of a baby. spectrum <laughs> right people can draw all the lines in the sand that they want but them waves they keep a washing that away <laughs> there is no yeah there's no line where it's just like oh now i've suddenly got a constructed language mm -hmm. um <laughs> but um, again too that that harkens back to the idea that natural language is you know ever evolving and completely messy yeah and so. there isn't one mm. thing that you can add to a language to just make it magically a fully realized conlang or whatever you want to, right. to, to term that thing 
you have to consider the entire thing and how it feels really because humans are used to just language so if it yeah. doesn't feel right it's probably not right granted you can be and fine it also, with it not feeling right and it also presents an advantage in that if you have in your world um some population or culture that you give a naming language to or you you at least make sure that the naming conventions that you use for them are consistent then if you go back to them later and think okay now i'm going to make a whole proper conlang for them you will have that basis you can turn what is ostensibly a naming language into a more complex language later on you're not essentially just starting mm -hmm. from scratch yeah as it's evolving well, you can that, just that's exactly what happened to one of the most popular examples klingon Uh, Klingon started off uh, in the, what was it, I think it's the second Star Trek movie, it was just a bunch of phrases that they had come up with um, just to be used in a one-off thing, and by the time they got around to making the third movie, they said, you know, no, let's let's flesh this thing out, and they actually hired a guy to take the handful of lines that they hand-created and basically just blow it up. Yeah, and just make it more... You can, you can do that, you can take it, you can take it further down the road it's not like you have to sit down and, and make it happen the first time around yeah and i mean klingon is a very good example i think it was mark okrand by the way yes it was yeah no. i was hesitating between mark okrand and paul frommer but no paul frommer is actually the navy guy paul frommer did the navi, yeah, navi and from for, avatar, for avatar yeah. and uh yeah he just had to work with what he had And then also that joins back to the question of the medium. How are you going to express it? Klingon has a very, very distinctive mm -hmm. ways, way of being written in, la in latent characters. With all the, the, the uh, uppercase. And it's yeah, well it's known for that. Yeah, it's got case thing. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and That's interesting. He had to so do that certain... because... Oh, go ahead. He had to do that because he had to represent it for the actors who did not know the IPA, and he did not have time to teach, like, 50 actors the IPA. International right. phonetic alphabet. <laughs> so, well, and for some of the actors, they had just put it on a tape recorder and expected them to figure it out themselves, yeah. too. There were a couple actors who were just like, well, I'm going to write this down the way that it works for me. <laughs> yeah, but he just used uppercase as a way to signal, hey, yeah. this is not exactly the same sound as the lowercase version. So you have to do right. this instead. And the actors just went along with it and that it worked out pretty okay. I mean, it's still very well known, like, decades after that. Mm -hmm. Well, and I, it's funny, too, because, I, I mean, I guess if you do want to draw a line when you're like, my language has made it, uh, when you have a death metal band that literally writes music in your language, I think you've made it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. There are there are full blown bands. Uh, there's a heck. There's an opera, if I remember right. That's literally entirely. In there is. Oh shit. Oh, uh, speaking of opera, there's also one that's written entirely in a Conley that was produced by a uh, just one guy. Well, two guys yeah. made the language, and then one of the guys is actually a composition major. Mm -hmm. And he made an entire opera as his master's thesis. So there you go, guys. That's where the line is at. If you wow. want to make a definition, <laughs> there it is. Yeah. I've got some work to do, apparently. <laughs> 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 yeah. 
if anyone wants to research that, it's Heira, H-E-Y-R-A, and you can probably find it on Reddit or something. And if you're looking for Klingon death metal, Stovacor is, is who you're looking for. Maybe. How do you even write that? I guess... Uh, S-T- it's just S-T-O-V-O-K-O-R. That's boring, come on. I, but they all dress up as Klingon guys uh, every time they perform. Oh, okay. They all have Klingon names. It's the craziest thing. I didn't even know this was a thing two hours ago. Uh, but doing research, I was like, of course there's a Klingon. Bit. Why wouldn't there be one? <laughs> but uh no yeah it's uh, and it's fascinating too uh because we actually have a lot of this stuff as well uh well documented um how a lot of these processes have come about um and a lot of it does start off with them kind of kicking off as a naming language a lot of these directors and writers will say um you know here are the sounds that i, I think would work well for this or they pull from from uh languages that they do know um and then they let those phonetics and syntax kind of just speak for itself a little bit. And that's it's, that's a place where you can start to diversify that and make it a little bit more complex. Um, there's tons of places you can do research on this stuff, too. I mean, Wikipedia, weirdly, is a really great source for this stuff, too. A lot of the, the grammar rules you didn't even know that you were following. Um, just options for you to, uh, to play with things that people don't normally do. Yeah. That, I think, my single biggest piece of advice to someone who's looking into making a full-blown conlang and go into maximal depth and complexity is just you have to do your research and just familiarize yourself with how languages work essentially because in my case my very the earliest version of my very first conlang um whose name shall not be spoken it was essentially <laughs> just a copy of Latin, because that's one of the very few languages. I took Latin in high school, um, and so I had some understanding of Latin grammar. And so essentially I just took all of Latin's paradigms and just copied them and just made different phonological forms for them. And I had this very sort of naive view at the time that because I understood how Latin worked... I sort of knew how language in general worked. Um, oh, no. Just because... I, I don't even really know why. I just had this narrow sort of view of that. Well, there's there's a general, like, cultural opinion, especially in the West, that, like, Latin is the root of all things, and it's, like, the epitome uh, of language which, and all that. Which is why English is, is what it is today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 partially, yeah. Um, Which, hey, if you, another example of a crazy place where you can throw in just the most random stuff and it still feels natural. English is is funky in a lot of ways because we tried to apply rules uh, from a completely different language to it. A bunch of monks uh, in translating things would constantly say, you know, here are rules that we have to follow in Latin, so naturally they should apply to English. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, is, is already a mu- of a language mixed with, uh, you know, Scandinavian influence, French influence. Uh, it's like, it's already a mud of a language. And then they said, you know what? We can't split infinitives because you can't do it in Latin. Because in Latin, it's one word. Yeah. Uh, your I, infinitive is one word. I'm, I'm not but, really aware of any other language where there have been like conscious decisions to retroactively like make the language like yeah no double negatives a different rule set because you can't do that in (laughs) latin therefore we'd like to do it like that just because we want to 
I mean, we can. Again, there are a lot of funky things that you could do. Just another bit of proof that, you know, this is an artistic endeavor and that, you know, art imitates reality far, or life imitates art sometimes far more than you think it does. Yeah. Imitations imitate imitations. Yeah. Yeah, and I... Uh, Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say... We have to stop being polite and just start being aggressive about it. So, you go ahead! Just search yourself slower. Yell. Yeah, you go ahead. (laughs) So, who's actually talking? Adam. (laughs) I was going to change the subject and try to move through the agenda a little bit. So, if you want to say something about this particular topic, we should have you say. Oh, yeah, on language guidance and artificially changing it like in English, uh, Mm. French and Spanish have a pretty long culture of that. Uh, Spanish much less so right now, but the French Academy is quite egregious about that. They try to impose a lot of things, and then there's another body of governance, which is uh, Education Nationale, which is just national education, it's governmental, while the Academy is not Mm -hmm. governmental that also tries to impose some standard. So you can still, in your world building, justify having very set-back ways, such as reverting back to an older form of the language in some ways. It's not going to be followed by everyone, and it's generally going to be assigned to an elite. But you can totally do it. Uh, this reminds me of one of my terrible ideas in my early conlanging days when... <laughs> I'd made my language, or I sort of was in the process of making my language, and then I came to learn that languages uh, change over time, and there are certain, we'll probably talk more about this a bit later, but there are certain pressures and certain changes that they'll be subjected to, and my conlang was supposed to be spoken over over a period of about 3,000 years, and so... I decided that the justification for not having the language change was that there's a a totalitarian government who, by law, requires that everyone speak the language exactly the same way. And that law stays consistent over a 3,000-year period so that no one ever speaks any differently at any point in history, (laughs) which that is completely nonsensical. Um, You can definitely have... So you, uh, you you had grammar police. Exactly, yeah. Um, That sort of thing just does not happen. You might get, yeah, some sort of intervention from the elites trying to keep the language more, quote-unquote, pure or something, and that might have some effects or some sort of stratification, but there's absolutely no way that you're going to get some sort of regime that demands that everyone speak exactly the same way always. That's just nonsensical. Oh, yeah, I mean... That's just taking a page from Orwell. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. 1984 had some um, misconception about language. Mm-hmm. So, I, I think I'd like to transition from here on to uh, the steps that one might take to create their own language if they're interested, uh, but maybe a bit intimidated by the process or just not really sure where to start. Um, So I think we can pretty safely divide this up into 
probably like five or six parts. We're only going to have time to kind of brush over them. We might not even get through them all today. Um, but uh, just for the sake of kind of giving someone a little bit of a guide or maybe expanding on what they already know a little bit, uh, I think we can sort of divide this into setting up the phonetics, the grammar and syntax, the lexicon or the dictionary that you use, uh, your script, if you have one at all. Because uh, as we've discussed, you don't necessarily need a writing system. Um, not all languages are written. And I guess there is that one language we talked about earlier that is only written. Uh, so take that for what you will. Um, there's also the history of the language and its evolution through time. Uh, and I, this is not as much, I don't think, uh, part of the process of making it, but also like how you document and uh, present the language might have an impact on like how people learn about it and um, how people perceive it. So I, I think if everyone is down for this, we can just sort of try and take a few minutes to talk about each one of those um, and just sort of give people a couple of thoughts on, you know, that process of going through and creating a language and some things to consider as you're going through each step. Uh, yeah, if I may, just first, I would like to talk about organization and how sure. to actually start. Which, as we said before, for naming languages, but applies just as much, if not way more, for what we could term like fully realized conlangs, is just start having goals. It's very important to know where you're going. Who is speaking the language? Again, are they writing it? Where is it spoken? That might be also very important, because if you are making several conlangs, they have to interact with each other. So it's... How are you going to actually do it? How are you going to take into account the influence of other languages? How are you going to take uh, into account the influence of your language, as in English or French or Spanish or whatever you speak? And in which th there is no right order to doing things. So you can start with sounds and then make a sentence or start with a sentence or even a full page of text and then create how it sounds. There is no right or wrong way. You just have to do it and decide how you want to do it. Yeah, the one of the things with conlanging as an art form, like many other art forms, is that there's yeah, there is no one right way to do it or one specific order that you have to follow. Um, you're free to jump around, but there is a sort of conventional wisdom that uh, you begin with the most basic or the most, I guess, fundamental aspect of it, which is um, the phonology and the phonetics, choosing what sounds or what um, units, I suppose, the language is going to be distinguishing and putting together to make into words, because that's really the most, um, you know, everything in the language ultimately is going to be based around the core set of sounds that it distinguishes. Again, assuming we're talking about yeah. spoken languages. 
Yeah, and I think uh, for anyone who might be listening who is new to this or who hasn't yet done this, uh, definitely go and familiarize yourself with the International Phonetic Alphabet, the IPA. We've mentioned Mm -hmm. it once or twice uh, here already. But um, yeah, this is a huge part of phonetics. Uh, I don't know a ton about language in general, but I know enough to know that uh, this is a really good place to start kind of getting the foundation set up. Yeah, it's just essentially a way of representing sounds and communicating about your sounds, as in the sounds you will have in the Kanlang, in a slightly more objective way than just saying in English, yeah, that's just an A sound, but because everyone's A sound is going to be a bit different depending on where they come from, socially and geographically. It's also, I think, really helpful uh, to be able to see the phonetic inventories, the IPA charts for existing languages, because that can kind of help you get a better sense of like, oh, if I want my language to sound like French, for example, I can pull up the French phonetic inventory, see what sounds they use, and then decide to like make some adjustments uh, based on, you know, whatever or whatever I think sounds good, for example. Yeah. Um, like, I, I think that's at least maybe, maybe I'm, I'm, uh, assuming too much here because like i said i'm not as invested in the uh conlanging space as some of you guys are but i feel like that's uh kind of a way of simplifying the process almost that might get overlooked sometimes um i i just yeah yeah. this is the one area where i will i will i will suggest the academic approach is probably the smartest one um uh, it doesn't again. It's not by any stretch saying it's the best one or the the only one for that matter. But I think that uh, if you're going to really go hard into understanding uh, how phonetics can inform your language, I would look into uh, like uh, like was mentioned, trying to find out uh, what sort of sounds are typical to certain languages. But more importantly, too, uh, how those uh, what we call phonemes work. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, in those languages, because that quite frequently is is a really good spot to create building blocks uh, for your language. Uh, one of the best examples, I think, of of understanding like phonemes. I'm gonna try and break this down as simply as possible. So, some of you, uh, you two, either yeah. uh, you two so more educated. It. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna try to, and these two more educated gentlemen can correct me if I'm wrong. But, uh, but one of the best examples to understanding what a phoneme is uh, is Japanese. Uh, in uh, in katakana and hiragana, two of the written forms of Japanese that are uh, each character represents a specific sound. Uh, that's essentially what a phoneme is. There, we each, have, each character is a full syllable, right? Yes, each one's a full syllable. Now, a syllable does not necessarily translate to single phoneme and vice versa. Uh, phonemes are the basic sounds that commonly occur in a language. So in Japanese, literally every phoneme that they have has a character to go with it, um, which makes it very easy to read Japanese, obviously once you know what each character sounds like uh so they have a character for ka they have a, car- a character for uh for ro um and things like that so those are all individual sounds and that's the smallest unit of sound that can be put together with other units of sound to make words every word in japanese can be constructed 
from their alphabet, essentially. Well, that's uh, a good analogy, but I... Well, a syllable and is see, not... This is where the more educated people can yeah, help me out here. <laughs> uh, essentially, what you've described is a syllabic unit, which is not necessarily the right. same as a phonemic Not unit. necessarily a phoneme per se, but I mean, it does kind of happen no, that way in Japanese, yeah, but it's not the same for every it's language. It's analogous in, in that you can think of right. every single syllable as its own component. Mm-hmm. So it kind of works that way, except with individual sounds, not syllables. Right. Right. So... Essentially, the, a phoneme is a sound that can be used to distinguish meaning. Um, trying to think of an example off the top of my head, but... Um, Cave and wave. That. Sorry? Bat and cat. I, I was just giving a minimal pair. Cave and wave. Mm, yeah, minimal pairs. That's a <laughs> we're going we're gonna to throw out all sorts of terms all of a sudden here. Oh, it's a very important term to that definition. But it, it's, yeah, it's very, it's very interesting stuff. And I, I think it's stuff that people don't think about. Minimal so, pairs are, uh, again, it's like really a good spot to, to start with thinking about your building blocks. I prefer minimal Bosch pairs. Get out of here, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> so what do I even respond to that? Phonemes is that they don't need to have a fixed, uh, pronunciation that's one of the big the distinction between just a sound and a phoneme so uh for example in uh Mm -hmm. english um we have the t sound uh, but it will very often surface as something different uh depending on what environment it's in so uh this is frustrating because my particular dialect doesn't do this but in the majority of English dialects, I think. Uh, weird things tend to happen to T when it's between vowels. So, like, uh, kitten, what I would pronounce as kitten, in many other parts of the English-speaking world, they'd pronounce kitten. It's not kitten, it's kitten. And you can hear, mm-hmm. since that T is between vowels, it's turned into a glottal stop, kitten. Um, whereas I've heard some other speakers uh, turn it into more of a flap, so it's kitten. Um, but we don't think of those as being different sounds. Right. We don't cognitively think to ourselves like, oh, okay, so that sound is transforming into another sound here. We, you don't even notice that until it's pointed out to you. So those are all considered variations of the same phoneme. Right. If it doesn't change your understanding of the word, it's, right. it's not a different phoneme, essentially, is, is the point. Uh, you know, it happens with a ton of words. Uh, mountain mm-hmm. and mountain. It's got that same thing going on where the T is a glottal stop versus uh, just being what it typically is. Uh, it doesn't change the fact that we understand and what that word is. can't imagine any version of English that would distinguish two completely different words, one of them pronounced mountain and the other pronounced mountain. That just wouldn't happen. Mm-hmm. So why don't we, uh, since we're getting on in time here, uh, why don't we talk a bit about the process of figuring out your language's grammar and syntax? Uh, admittedly, this is a space where I'm not too knowledgeable, so I'm just going to pass this along to whoever is interested in tackling that. Uh, if I may, uh, before we get into this, about sure. phonetics and how we started describing that as sounds, it doesn't have to be just sounds. We talked about building blocks and units of meaning. And these sounds, we also call, for instance, um, the units of meaning in a sign language a phonology. It can happen. 
we all can also call it a kinology mm -hmm. from Greek kino movement. That's cool. I've not heard that before. Yeah, so you can say phonology yeah. for a sign language, and that's going to be understood as the ensemble of the units of meaning of the language, whatever the form. And in written-only languages, like we talked about before, you can also have, like, uh, graphemes. Mm -hmm. So it's just to say that you can have building blocks that are not sound and still have a language. You don't need sound for it to be a fully realized conning or whatever. Yeah, that's a good point. So yes, uh, grammar in syntax, right? Yeah. So, like I said, <laughs> go ahead. This is a yeah. This is a this is a place where it, it does pay to look at other languages yeah, and definitely. see how they do things. Uh, uh, just mm -hmm. just straight up on the surface. Um, uh, one of the examples we keep bringing up is uh, is Latin. Latin doesn't have, uh, uh, technically speaking, doesn't really have a set word order. For instance, this is a, this is a syntax here. Um, in that we, you can honestly, goodness, in, in simple sentences, you can rearrange the words however the heck you want, and it will still make sense. Uh, this is part and parcel because Latin has uh, endings uh, for all of its words that change uh, its its place in the sentence, anyways. So we know what's the direct object, we know what's the subject of the sentence, we know what the verb is. And I would um, be. Oh, and sorry. so this is a. This is a I was just going to say I would oh, be remiss. Ahead. Uh, if I didn't bring up my beloved classical Nahuatl, my favorite language in the galaxy, uh, which <laughs> does the same thing. It has a completely free word order, um, but it does it in a completely different way than Latin does. So it also has ways of marking what's the subject and what's the object, etc. So you can tell um, what all the roles are, but mm -hmm. instead of doing it with case marking like Latin does, it just marks everything on the verb. So just by looking at the verb, you automatically know who's doing what to who, and the words can just come in any old order you like. So mm -hmm. It's wonderful. Yeah, now at least. And see, that's 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 a place where you can play with some fun and interesting syntax. Yeah, because when you are when you are Sorry, when I... you have this free word order, which is not really completely a thing in any language, as far as I know. You can order them in many ways, but it's never completely free. There's some kind of tendency that emerges. It's never going to be completely random. It's The word order will still be yeah. used to convey some sort of wider right. meaning, but that meaning yeah. doesn't have to be... We're, as English speakers, we're pretty used to word order marking what the subject and object are. But in other languages, like Nahuatl or Latin, it can be more of a focused thing. So the general tendency... Uh, with Nahuatl is that the the words that are given greater focus, the things that you're really trying to convey, come more towards the front of the sentence, whereas uh, things that are considered background information or can be understood from context, they'll go towards the end of the sentence. Um, whereas yeah. in a language like Navajo, instead they have um, this crazy animacy hierarchy where every single noun will be assigned a value based on how animate it is, whether it's a person, um, whether it's, you know, alive and capable of speech, or if it's a rock or a flowing river or an animal, uh, it will be given a sort of an animacy uh, value. And then all the nouns so in a sentence will be ordered in 
um, will be given preferential treatment in accordance with animacy. So the most animate word has to come at the front and the least animate word has to come at the that back. That is wild. Mm-hmm. It's great. Oh, my God. Well, and there are, there are a bunch of languages, too, out in uh, uh, a lot of... Uh, you know, like Pacific Islander languages and stuff like that too. That uh, that have a lot of play with word order based on yeah you know, a, a bunch of different values. Animacy is one of them uh, that I that I've heard of before. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of crazy stuff um, that happens to languages that again people don't think about because we are built around a lot of really simplified structures. Um, uh, but I, I do want to point out though to you, Slorini, uh, some some crazy numbers that I, I, I've known for a while. I can tell you there is actually 13.7% of a 13, almost 1,400 language pool that have no sentence order that is fixed. Yeah, but not having a fixed word That's order crazy. does not mean it's free. <laughs> right. And it, right, right, right. Again, there, there's some distinction there, but it, it's, it's just one of those things where it's like you don't ever think about that because 41% of us or I'm sorry, over 70, 76% of us roll in a specific uh, way. Typically, um, you know, we're looking at like subject, object, verb, or subject, verb, object. Those are typically the, the, the two biggest mm-hmm. ones that we see. Yeah, and uh, you start talking about SVO, VOS, which are just subject, verb, which, and object. Which, yeah, is, is a major simplification of just kind of the three biggest parts of a, of a sentence and not necessarily yeah, a, but a, a founding plate for all. I, yeah. I would want to encourage anyone discovering what word order is and what it can do to not get too hung up on, hey, my language is SVO, or mm. hey, my language is OVS, because it's, in the end, quite meaningless. You yeah. want have many sentences that are just SVO or OVS. Mm-hmm. Well, and a lot of languages have freedom with that too. In English, we can even do that a little. We, we play with word yeah. order sometimes to put emphasis on mm-hmm. different things too. Yeah, uh, you do this. Do you do this? And you've just reversed exactly. like your subject and the verb when English is quote-unquote SVO because you... It just describes the minimal word or the minimal the order of the minimal sentence. Right. Again, it's a good place to start. It's a it's a good uh, building block, foundation kind of space. But yeah, I, again, none <clears throat> of these things are things that you should get hung up on and feel like uh, once you've said it, it's set in stone. Um, because again, the language is constantly changing, constantly shifting, and it's constantly being spoken by people, um, and people make errors. Sometimes those errors are grievous enough that we we we. We notice them and can't understand what's trying to be said. In other scenarios, it's close enough to the meaning that we don't even have to bother asking them to clarify. Um, yeah. So again, a lot of the stuff that we bring up, not uh, this is a part of Red's bingo card. Again, none of this is word of law. Um, there's a lot of wiggle room in here. I would say that um, but just probably the simplest consideration to make when it comes to syntax uh, which will also um, have several effects on grammar, especially if you're doing things from a historical approach. Um, the, one of the big things to establish early on is if you have a word and if you have another word modifying it, does the modifier come first or the thing that it's modifying come first? And that 
that yeah, will form that thing. will carry through to all the different types of phrases if you want the the technical details if you look up a uh, head initial versus head final syntax basically that's just all the different types of phrases uh there's one word that's the modifier and the other word that's being modified and generally uh most languages will have a preference uh, across all the different types of phrases of which one of those comes first and just following those through that will yeah. just give you a sort of prototypical word order which again will probably have some freedom to vary uh but it's a good place to start yeah french for instance can do both it can go uh un manteau blanc, which is just a white coat, or un blanc manteau, which is also a white coat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that order is going to influence meaning, like un homme grand, a tall man, un grand homme, a good man. And this is actually a really cool place, too, where you can use this effect to your advantage in making your language feel like it has older components as well. Um when we you know speak in english and we say this is my house uh you know my house is very modern sounding but if we say this house of mine it kind of lends itself sort of an archaic vibe to it which is a little you know a bit of a misnomer there because it's not like that's a, that's how everyone back in the day would say it too you know it's it's got to come after um but it it can give you uh spaces though to make your language feel like it's got some age to it when there are constructions that they don't really follow anymore um, that uh, make it feel like this language has evolved, like there's an archaic way to say this and there is a more modern way to say this. Um, mm-hmm. Which uh, is not something you see very often in conlangs, uh, usually because we're kind of focused in one point at time in time, really, uh, when we're telling stories and stuff like that. But again, we're here to give you options and th- cool things that you can do uh, to, to change that up a bit. And I think when we're talking about the passing of time, uh, it kind of naturally brings us into a conversation about the words in our language, since, you know, words are constantly being added and changed and modified, and uh, you're, oh, you're, exce- you're... Especially with the yep, internet. And you're bringing, and you're bringing in <laughs> new words from other languages to describe things that maybe this local culture doesn't have or wasn't as familiar with. Uh, one of my favorite examples is, you know, the... You know, before the settlers came over to the Americas, there were no horses here. So the word horse didn't exist, and it kind of had to get added to those languages, uh, either by bringing in the literal word horse or by creating a new word for it. Um, So, you know, the the language, the lexicon is constantly changing as well, sort of in the same vein that you guys are talking about uh, as, you know, the, the way that... Uh, the perception of and the usage of syntax and grammar can change, so too can the lexicon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's also, as you, yeah, following on from that, um, if there are interactions between uh, multiple cultures, that's always uh, interesting things are going to happen in that case, because languages tend to, when they're in close contact, not only do they borrow words from each other's but that they also borrow um grammatical elements as well um get what we call an aerial effect where even unrelated languages existing in proximity to each other can share some features um 
lots of space for you to play around with there. Yeah, and if you're making a lot of different languages, like I think, uh, Bib, you said you were working on a couple, uh, you know, if you have a couple all in the same world, if they're kind of close to one another, you can kind of iterate off of each other. And like, you know, as you make one change to one language, maybe you like take a small piece of that and put it in the one next to it, uh, which I think is always a really fun way of doing world building in general, is like, once you have this thing, how can you apply that thing to things that are around it? Yeah, definitely. And that's something we can that we call aerial feature, which are feature that we are that are found in an area. Mm-hmm. It's pretty useful to communicate an an idea of closeness in the languages and therefore the mm-hmm. cultures. Or at least that's what I do with them. Yeah, for sure. Well and 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 we, we so frequently borrow words from other languages, uh, especially in our global society that we're in now. Um, you're gonna you're gonna have some serious crossover if you're writing something more modern. Uh, not that modern fantasy kind of you know goes this deep uh, as much as often as we'd like. Uh, Bright was was uh, seemed promising <laughs> on the surface, but uh, we bring up oh, Bright on this podcast way too often. <laughs> Because yeah. Bright, Bright had such potential, uh, and it makes me cry. <laughs> it was so bad, so bad, so bad. But like, um, this is so again, this is another area I have. I, I don't, I don't often see much. Uh, you know, uh, conlangers uh, who are doing major world building projects uh, try to lean into so much loan words galore uh, in in cultures and societies mm. that intermingle. Uh, especially if you've got some sort of culture that's big on trading uh, and bringing things from one part of the world to the other. Um, you uh, Or because you could go the other way. Oh, sorry. Um, uh, what's the other way? <laughs> uh, the other way is it, it all depends. Again, this is where you consider your culture and mm-hmm. what their outlook is on borrowing words. Because you could have a culture like Japanese, for example, is notoriously extremely happy to borrow words left right and center all over the place mm-hmm. um or you could do the other thing and do what navajo did where navajo is just extremely reticent to borrow any kind of words right. even for uh new pieces of technology like computer along, like they've never seen guns before um so they could have just borrowed the word gun it would have been simple enough for them to do that uh but they didn't they came mm-hmm. up with this uh, term, I believe it's belto, if I remember correctly, which means um, uh, by means of which an explosion is made, I think. Um, and that's their word for gun. And then they, they kept going because as more technologies were introduced, again, they had the option of borrowing the words, but they just didn't. Um, so the word for... Um, trying to remember some of the, the word for computer is electric brain. Um, yeah. The word for cell phone is one spins around with it for some reason. Um, and the word for tank is kind of infamous because it's, I used to remember how to say it properly, but it means uh, that the whole thing translates to the wheeled vehicle that crawls around by which big explosions are made and that one sits on top of at a high elevation. And it's got like 14 or 15 syllables or something. <laughs> and they chose to do that instead of just borrow the word tank, which would have been much simpler and easier, but they just chose not to. Right. 
again, your world building's got to inform all the all the little bits and pieces have got to inform all the other bits and pieces. Uh, again, it's not like it's a solid requirement, but uh, these these are things that we're we're suggesting to you to help you flesh things out, make them feel more visceral, make them feel more natural. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think, you know, we're, we're throwing around a lot of stuff really quickly here. Uh, so I, I kind of apologize as well for uh, throwing around all this stuff. But um, I, I think... I don't. We're, we're trying to hook you guys <laughs> in. Uh, you know, if you're like, dang, I wish I knew more about phonemes. Could we get an episode on yeah, phonemes? Yeah, we'll probably uh, have to... You guys need oh, to... I could we'll probably have to do a sequel next season or something. Um which we are also not averse. No, to. not at all. Um, <laughs> right. But yeah, so just just to kind of start wrapping this thing up, uh, I, I think it's probably pretty helpful to just kind of talk about some of the places where you can learn more about all this stuff. Um, I know, Slorny, you mentioned a resource that you helped put together. What was that again? Oh, uh, yeah, it's Kanlang's University. It's available for free online as PDFs. It's a Google site. It's free for us, so that's nice. But it's basically just a small collection of articles. Maybe some of you have actually seen it. I don't know. Yeah. But it goes through the yeah, first I'm, I'm steps. It's, it's not complete, but it exists. Yeah, and I, and I know, um, you know, Bib is also actively working on some stuff and has a bunch of videos on his uh, YouTube channel where, like, you can see the conlang being made. Um is there, I guess, I guess, like, aside from those places, uh, where, where would you guys recommend people go to get some more information about all this stuff? Um, or, like, resources would, to help them honestly, out? Honestly, uh, Zumpist's website, which is, uh, oh, I forget his name, Mark Rosenfelder, I think? Uh, yeah, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah uh, Zumpist, Z, uh, Z-O-M-B-I-S-T, has a website with the free version of his language construction kit. And there's also a paid version that I do recommend, but the free version should be enough to get you started. And yeah. at least you will know enough to know what to type in Google. Yeah, and Mark's been um, doing this online, I mean, since the dawn of the internet, the public internet. Oh, yeah, definitely. He uh, started episode, one yeah, of the first... Forever. Forums. I, mean, I was reading this as a kid. Uh, <laughs> which is crazy to think about now that I that I'm back on his website for the first time in a long time. I was playing Halo. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, hey, I, would, I, mean, I would just Google some of this stuff too. There are a lot of people on YouTube who have some really excellent and much more uh, well thought out uh, breakdowns of some of the stuff to simplify it for you. I know Artifexian has got some uh, stuff on this too, for instance. Um, there yeah. are tons of linguists who love breaking this stuff mm -hmm. down, uh, trying to do the explain it like I'm five version on YouTube all the time too. Uh, so if you're if you're a little worried about trying to get into the more academic stuff, but still want to know at least some of that material, uh, there is no shortage of of simpler breakdowns from uh, people online if you just Google it. Yeah, and we'll I will also throw in that um, the art of language invention by David J.P. Yeah, I was going to mention that. Mm -hmm. I was going to mention that, and he made like 80% of any language we see on TV these days, since yeah, Game of Thrones. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he's yeah. the, the go-to language guy in Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think so. The, there's also uh, the one who made the language of Man of Steel, Tristan Schreier, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And of course, yeah, Paul Frommer for Navi. Well, and that's the other fun thing, too, in this era that we're in with a lot of people doing this professionally now, which, first off, is darn cool. Uh, I would love to get paid oh, yeah. to just make languages. That would be the sickest job ever. Um, a lot of these people are proud of what they've done, too, so you can find a lot of really cool breakdowns on some of these languages as well. Uh, you know, how they got and, from A to B. And honestly, I would just, even just looking through Wikipedia... Because that's uh, essentially what I did, um, is that just once I started getting interested in languages beyond, like, Latin, mm-hmm. um, I would just Google, just as of a passing fancy, just Turkish grammar, and just go to the Wikipedia page mm-hmm. and just read through it. Mm-hmm. And that was really what sort of opened my eyes to all the different possibilities, like, because when I saw Turkish, which was my first non, well depending on whether you call Turkish European, but um, for the sake of simplicity, non-European language that I looked at and it opened my eyes to, wow, it does things completely differently from anything I've ever seen. And then I looked at Finnish and Nahuatl and all these other ones. And it's just a very good way of giving you an idea of what the possibilities are. So just yeah, browsing Wikipedia, I'd recommend that too. Or if any of you are at a collegiate level uh, or something like that, or heck, even in high school, if you guys uh, are at schools that offer different languages uh, and True. you have the time to do it, honestly, just jump into some of those courses. Uh, even if it's just for a semester or two, just something fun to do. You can learn a ton about a language uh, and how it operates uh, differently from what you speak uh, just by kind of getting that quick, uh, you know, academic tour of, of, uh, of the language uh for, for a semester or two. Yeah, for sure. I don't think I don't think enough people take advantage of, of some of the opportunities they have, you know, if you are in the education system. So Yeah, I have no it. idea how that works. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, why don't we go ahead and wrap this thing up then? This is the space to plug yourself, to talk about whatever you want to talk about more of or do you, do you think we missed. Um, why don't we go ahead and start with Biblardian? Um, so I, as I mentioned, I do have a YouTube channel where I discuss this sort of stuff at length. Um, I have several, um, more sort of general conlang tutorial e-videos that just go over specific linguistic features. Uh, regrettably, my, the, the sort of beginners series that I made for people who are just totally new to conlanging is not very good. Um... <laughs> So I, I've been meaning to go back and redo it for some time now. So, so you probably shouldn't start there. Well, um, lucky for you, uh, this comes but, out in like six, five or six months, something for something like that. So just get get updating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I really gotta get moving. Um, <laughs> if if you get it I updated by then, we'll have a, to have you re-record a little thing saying I have updated my. We'll just slap that in there. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't mind. Uh, um, but I guess just as a, a final general piece of advice, I would say um, I would strongly recommend starting simple. 
because there is, I think, a, a common temptation, myself included, I, I fell for this trap, is just to, every time you learn something new about how language can work, just throwing it in to what you're making. Um, and before you know it, it's just ballooned into this horrible monstrosity um, that's completely unwieldy and even you don't know how it works. So, especially if you're just brand new to conlanging, I would really re recommend starting with a simple project and keeping it minimal and manageable and then just expanding it from there as you need to. Mm -hmm. uh, Slurin is up next. Uh, yeah, um, I don't have anything to plug. I'm not really active on any social media or any platform like YouTube. But if you want to come hang out in the uh, subreddit r slash canlangs, it's a pretty cool place. We have a lot of resources and we'd like to have beginners. We have also affiliated with a Discord server, which is called the Canlangs Discord Network. That's also pretty good. And like 3,000 people strong. So if you want to try and see what other people are up to, you could join. And that that's about all I do. So <laughs> I don't really have much to say. Uh, you guys know where to find me. Uh, I float around uh, in various places on the web. Uh, you can probably hit me up on Discord, or you can find me on Twitter, at HeKidsFinna underscore Red. Uh, I love trying to help people uh, find the right resources for you know what they're trying to do, so don't, don't be afraid to reach out. Um, other than that, uh, you know, just... Uh, try stuff you know this is again this is all art um not a lot of it is 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 really uh one way to do everything um i'm with uh with with bib on saying uh don't be afraid to start small too uh you have all the time in the world to uh expound upon your stuff later if you want um go ahead and do just a simple naming language uh if if that's what will work for you for the time being uh and then let it build organically if anything that's going to help it feel a little bit more natural in a way uh, letting your language evolve uh right alongside the rest of your work and i'm going to go ahead and uh take this in a little bit of a different direction i've recently been interested in uh how you name people uh in like the structure of a uh naming system um, and I think that language plays into that in some really interesting ways sometimes. Uh, for example, some things that I've been playing with is like a culture that puts kind of like the clan before the individual. So literally in their structure of how they name people, the clan name comes first and then their personal name. Um, there's another one that I've been playing around with where uh, the... People live on an archipelago, so there's a whole bunch of little islands. So they put a little bit of extra value on their birth island. So their birth island uh, goes into the name. And I just think that's been kind of a fun place to explore uh, conlanging, kind of, in a sort of roundabout way. Um, this definitely falls more in the naming language side of things. Uh, but it's been really fun, and it allows me to sort of construct a person, a character in the story uh, just by naming them, which I think is really fun. Uh, still tweaking it, but I just thought I'd share that and uh, you know, encourage you to try and use language not just for 
you know, the sake of making one, but also like consider how it plays into the story uh, and how you might use it with, you know, whatever you've got going on there. Um, aside from that, you can follow me at the usual place, uh, Twitter at Adam C. Bassett. It's going to be in the description. All these places uh, are in the description. Um, and I think that's about it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for everyone who's here. Uh, who joined us today. I appreciate you coming by and spending the time. Um, Thank you for us, yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah, it was fun. And uh, I think that's going to be it. So we'll see you next time. On the next episode of Connie. Yeah, in like a, in like a year. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fine. I can wait. You've been listening to the World Casting Podcast, an affiliate production of World Building Magazine. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, you can check out our website at worldbuildingmagazine.com, where you can also find links to all of our social media and our Discord server. This episode was edited by Slorini.